to even have a chance of being a professional museum uh, <clears throat> musician. Is that the whiskey? <clears throat> Mark Graven and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Cheers, everybody. Welcome to episode 13 of Lean Whiskey. Uh, it's Mark Craven here, and we're joined. It's been a little while. We got Jamie here. How's it going? I'm doing I'm doing great. It's, uh, yeah, good to be back with you here. So for anyone who hasn't listened to these, it's our, I, I guess, what, our podcast co-founder, Jamie Flinchbaugh, and our intent is that it's usually me and Jamie, but we have some guests occasionally. Yeah, we've had, I guess, two guests in a row. So I did my first one with a guest, uh, with Susan Pleasant, and yeah. uh, you did a deep dive on healthcare in the, the last episode with one of, your, one of your friends from the industry. And so that was a fun one because you guys have done a lot of, uh, especially around the podcast or the, uh, the, the blog, a lot of yeah. projects together and his contributions to the blog. So that was a fun one to listen to. Yeah, Canadian perspective, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, talking about process. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, it's funny, my wife and I, uh, it was a fun weekend. On Friday, we went to uh, Sarah McLaughlin concert. And since she's Canadian, I think she said um, something about, if I remember right, she was talking about writing songs and something about the process. And my wife and I turned to each other. Like, uh. <laughs> yeah, not many people get to hear that unless you're in our, our, our line of work. Uh, um, but I, I used to work in Canada uh, way back when, when I was a Chrysler. I lived in Michigan, drove south to get to Canada, uh, Windsor, <laughs> yeah. every single day. Um, so it's it's become between that and clients over the years. It, it's it's uh, uh, it, it doesn't even catch me off guard anymore. It's uh, just 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 part of working with folks from folks from Canada, and they you know, who knows who says it right, whether it's them or us. So. <laughs> Well, uh, tonight we are sitting here. So Ryan and I drink Canadian whiskey. We are drinking, we'll get into this in a minute, American whiskey. Is, tonight is kind of a big American event for a lot of people, a week after the Super Bowl. Tonight is uh, the Academy Awards, uh, the Oscars. We're not watching that. <laughs> no, we're not. And uh, I, I can't remember the last time I did. I have some friends that watch it religiously, but... Um, since most of the people that come across the camera or the stage, I don't even know their names. Um, not a big pop, pop culture guy. Uh, definitely not, not the thing for me. But I, I, my own American awards, um, uh, the U.S. women's soccer team, it was just wrapping up winning, winning the CONCACAF uh, region, um, which is basically the Olympics play-in. Um, so they qualified in the semifinals. They played Canada in the finals, and they uh, it was a tight game for a while. But in the end, they had a nice, handy victory uh, to win the win the Concacaf championship. So that's that. That to me was the only competition that really made uh, really matter today. <laughs> and it was it was uh, decided on the field instead of somebody opening up an envelope and hopefully reading the correct winner. Hopefully reading the yeah. There was no. I mean, there was. Just as much suspense, perhaps, but uh, um, 
now you got to put the ball in the back of the net. So, um, so uh, yeah, so you're not ending your weekend uh, with the Oscars, but um, uh, you started your weekend with a, with a concert. Um, uh, what other uh, new fun things did you have going on this weekend? Well, so my wife and I went to uh, a thing this afternoon. Uh, um, a town near us called Grapevine, Texas, and they actually do grow some grapes. I like Texas whiskey better than I like Texas wine. I'll just leave it at that. But there is a um, retail establishment that, that does events on Sunday. So a friend had invited us to go along and it was a, a champagne tasting and, um, you know, get to try small amounts of a couple different champagnes. And the, the fun thing, though, so drinking champagne was not particularly new, but I got to open a bottle uh, with what they call a saber. Have you ever seen this? I have seen it. And then I've seen people try to stretch that into other, you know, scraping off the, the cap with uh, other valuable things. But um, <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen it in, in person, though. I've certainly seen videos. I've, I've seen it done in person. And I had the opportunity today. And, you know, not to, well, everything comes back to lean, right? But you think about, like, uh, I didn't have a training within industry style standard work document, but I did have a good instructor. And we're, we're going to talk later about supervision. <laughs> so I had close supervision, um, you know, kind of doing some safety checks. And, and actually, I learned, like, if you hold the bottle a certain way, and if the bottle's been prepped, like the, the wire cage around the cork has to be loosened. And if you hold the bottle in a certain way, so there, there's, there's a vertical seam and it really didn't require a lot of effort. We had this kind of like maybe foot long ornate looking sword thing and just, and it popped, it popped right off. I, I, I could show you the video of that sometime. Yeah, maybe, so I, maybe I'll post it in the, in the episode. <laughs> I saw, I saw the picture and uh, so, yeah, I actually have a question cause it, uh, yeah, I was curious why the cage stays on at all. So I understand loosening it, of course, but why not just remove the cage and then slide off uh, the, the cork with the, the safe? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I mean, afterwards they did give me, and my wife got to open a bottle too. So we each got as a memento, kind of like the, the end of the glass with the cork still in it and the cage still kind of loosely around. So maybe they just left it on to give it to us as, as that memento. Okay. So, so you actually, so it actually does crack the glass. Uh, oh yeah. As part of the procedure. Okay. Yeah. So like I said, even though they did a safety check, this seems like an inherently unsafe thing, but the, uh, the edge of the glass seems to break pretty cleanly. I mean, I guess, you know, you've got to be careful before pouring it that you're not pouring shards of glass. Sure. <laughs> Well, it does seem like you would really rather do it with not your best whiskey because I, I can't imagine that, or we're well, not your best champagne, but I can't imagine that it's the, uh, the way to avoid spillage is with the saber. Um, there, so there was, like a, there was a little, little bit of spillage. Floor. Yeah. Uh, a little, a little bit did, but, um, but yeah, so it was a fun thing. So uh, watching soccer, is not really that's that's not an unusual or a new thing for you. Did you do anything new this weekend? No, so I, I watched soccer. I also coached. Uh, we had some indoor games uh, uh, earlier today, and um, uh, Saturday spent uh, uh, spent a good hour and a half with my tax accountant, uh, going through some changes to, to my business and and doing some planning and 
So not exactly, uh, not exactly a, a thrilling way to spend a Saturday, a good chunk of a Saturday, but, uh, but a necessary one. Um, uh, and, uh, again, just part of the process. So yeah, my, my, my weekend was not filled with, uh, uh things like sabers and concerts. <laughs> well, I, I bet you learned something though. Learned I definitely that. learned some things. Um, I, I've always been a bit uh, sloppy with those things. I always, you know, just put more energy into into the. I always call it the front of the house, right? What I did yeah. with clients than than worrying about all the back stuff. I, I always made sure it was at least buttoned up and conservative. Yeah. But um, yeah, never really invested a lot of my energy into optimizing it, so to speak. Um, and, and so, yeah, definitely some some opportunities there and some some lessons and. And uh, the guy I work with also likes stories. So he, he loves, you know, things that people tried to get away with and didn't and what that informs us about tax law, which, um, you know, maybe he has a lean accounting uh, or lean tax uh, podcast where he tells yeah. stories like we do. But uh, he certainly has a lot of stories of things that he's, he's studied, uh, usually that they end up, usually they're pretty easy to study because somebody writes court case about it because that's how it yeah. comes to light is, uh, Somebody, somebody stretching the, the tax law. I haven't asked my CPA. This seems like this would be a stretch now that we're doing a podcast about whiskey and, you know, this is a, you know, there, there are some minor business expenses for the podcast hosting and whatnot. Like is the whiskey now a business expense? <laughs> it, it's, it's, you know, there, there's, there's whiskey podcast out there and I, I, I'm not sure if the only reason they do it is so that they can, Either get free whiskey or uh, get uh, get to get to write it off as part of their business once they do buy it. Um, I, I think we probably have to have a much higher percentage of our of our of our whiskey drinking on air uh, yeah. for it to count. But <laughs> but maybe if we have an episode every other night, then uh, then then maybe that would qualify as a, as a business <laughs> expense. So um, did, did your time with uh, Tax Talk and the, the accountant drive you to drink? Or you're, we're, we're just enjoying whiskey because we, we like it here. I think we just like it. Actually, no, it's actually uh, more interesting than, uh, than I would normally expect. So that wasn't, uh, that wasn't too bad. And, and a long time ago, I think my father um, taught me this, is never complain about paying taxes because uh, it means you, you, you made money to be able to pay taxes. So yeah. Uh, you might not like the rate that you pay, but uh, that's about voting. But once once it's set, never complain about your taxes because you know you just should be thrilled that you made enough money to pay them. So um, yeah, I never I never spend a whole lot of time fretting or or complaining about uh, what goes on there. Yeah, a good tax year is usually a or a high tax year is usually a a good year uh, on top of that. So. Well, so, so since we are drinking and, and neither one of us, as we don't typically do, waited for, waited for us to get to the topic, <laughs> uh, we're both already, already a few sips in at least, um, we'll, we'll get to our, our whiskey selection. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, uh, I do realize that we're, we're going to try to come up with a category each, each episode that might get harder and harder. Um, we start, as we started talking about this, and we usually start you know, texting or emailing back and forth about ideas. And so uh, I had a few bottles that were nearing the end. So mm-hmm. finishing the bottle became the idea. And I guess you didn't have anything 
uh, close enough <laughs> to the end. Uh, I did not. I, I proposed empty bottles. You know, I proposed you had still have two days to make it a near empty <laughs> bottle, but but that's okay. So uh, I, I did have something selected, um, and so we turned it into the new category of the Pacific Northwest. Um, so whiskeys of any variety coming from the uh, Pacific Northwest. So that's our that's our category. Um, so uh, what, why don't you share what you're drinking from the Pacific Northwest first? Yeah, so I am drinking, um, it's from Washington State. And um, so there, they, well, may, uh, you, you know the soccer rivalry better than I do between Portland and Seattle, but this is uh, from Westland Distillery in Seattle. It's the uh, Westland American Single Malt Whiskey. Uh, it says here on the bottle, it's non-chill filtered, which uh, a lot of uh, scotch single malt whiskeys um, take that approach. Um, there's no coloring added. It's uh, it's uh, 46% alcohol. There's no age statement. So I'm kind of, you know, it's, uh, it's probably a relatively young whiskey, but one, one thing I, I know from the research about it is they, they distill it, you know, they, they, they do the whole process end to end. So I think when I bought the bottle, um, you know, it stood out like, okay, a Washington whiskey. And I would definitely, you know, try to buy one from a, a producer that really does the whole process end to end. Yeah. I think, you know, if you're going to especially do something in the Pacific Northwest where you do have some, some interesting uh, agricultural options and, and of course, you know, some great water supply as well. Uh, you, you do, you, you don't want something, you know, from Indiana juice that, that they just ship over. And, yeah. and it does seem that while the center of the country, you know, everything from Texas to Kentucky is a lot of bourbon uh, as the centerpiece of, of what it is, or at least um, corn as the, 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 the primary grain. Yeah. Um, it, it certainly seems like the Pacific Northwest is more interested in sort of single malts and in, as well as with wheat, um, uh, which makes a certain amount of sense, but yeah. certainly seems to have their own little a little flair in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, it says here a little bit of research I had done. Ninety uh, percent of the barley that's used in this whiskey is is grown in Washington State. So I'd you know uh, learning about um, you know my friends at Garrison Brothers in Texas. They use Texas corn. They use Texas wheat they had always uh, bought barley from the Pacific Northwest. And, and until recently, they, they found a Texas source for barley. But, um, you know, I, I think of the Northwest, I think I've heard of Vermont being a barley growing state. Um, so maybe it's, it's more like Scotland in terms of climate and for the aging and the agriculture aspect. Well, you know, it, it is certainly, uh, I mean, the moisture alone, um, uh, fits that fits that bill, and um, and I think that you know I guess the style of craft is is you can find that anywhere, but um, there certainly does seem to be a connection there between the two. Um, and and mine you know mine is in in, in a lot of ways very similar, except uh, you know while while your Westland is you know it's all local ingredients. Um, Mine has a lot of imports from from Scotland, um, so so I'm drinking. So tell, tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm drinking McCarthy's Oregon uh, single malt pots distilled whiskey, which uh, 
I'm putting a lot of the description, you almost don't need tasty notes. They're going to put it right in the title. Um, and, 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 it, and it begs a joke about Oregon. When you say pot still, that has nothing to do with other agricultural products. <laughs> no, it does not. At least, uh, at least it doesn't say so in the, no, no, in the it barrel. Does. It, it, does. Bottle. <laughs> it does not. But yeah, what's interesting about them is they, um, they actually use Scottish barley um, and they actually import Islay peat um, hmm. as, uh, to, to pro- process that, that barley. So, you know, one of the, the, the peat fields in Scotland are, you know, one of, one of the few things that is, is hard for anyone to really copy. Um, and, and McCarthy says, well, we're just going to import the peat <laughs> um, from Scotland, which is probably got to be more expensive than, than importing the barley itself. Um, so they do use uh, Oregon oak. Um, of that's course, they use. Yeah. So, so I think that's 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 neat. Um, they, of course, use uh, Oregon uh, water, which, which has its own at least aspects to it. Um, but one of the things I thought really interesting was, uh, I was probably say this wrong, but Vidmer Brothers Brewing Company, um, which does some good wheat beers uh, along with other things. I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. I've had them. It's, I can't remember the last time I've had it, but I've, I've had it a few times. And they actually ferment the barley for McCarthy's. So obviously, you know, uh, McCarthy's takes it and, you know, does the, the mash process and all that um, uh, and the stilling process, but uh, the initial uh, barley fermenting mm-hmm. uh, is, is done by Vidmer Brothers Brewing, um, which I, I don't know how that translates into the taste, um, yeah. but I just found it an interesting, an interesting note. Well, I mean, one thing I remember from visiting Scotland, the malting process is something that many distilleries there actually just outsource. So like there's not many distilleries that make their own barrels anymore. Right. They buy them from cooperages. And there's some who take pride and say, we make our own barrels. Like, right. right. Well, that's a vertical integration decision. Um, and and there, there was one that I went to that actually had its own malting floor that they were quite proud of. but um, yeah, so it's interesting to see the, these choices uh, make versus buy. It happens. Yeah, in, and I, I think as too. long as it's not, um, you know, open market, you know, they have clear partnerships where they can still control the quality makes a big difference. Um, mm-hmm. Now, this is this is only three years old. And if you while everything about this sort of screams, you know, scotch whiskey, um, if, if, if you would have showed me a three year old scotch whiskey, I would probably hesitate to even try it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's interesting that, you know, this is only three years old um, and it doesn't have, it, you know, it doesn't taste like an 18 year old uh, for sure. But, but for three years old, this is really quite good. It's, it's smooth. Uh, has, is, I think uh, tastes more like scotch than any other American whiskey I've had. Mm. Um and I and I uh, drink it neat, right? I, I, yeah. If somebody gave me a three-year-old, uh, you know, Scottish Scotch, <laughs> uh, so a bit redundant. Um, I, I <laughs> doubt I drink it neat. Um, I'd probably at least be a mixer, but but this is this is quite good neat. So I I do think they're doing something right, um, mm-hmm. and 
Yeah, it's kind of disappointing. They they do hand do do some hand labeling. So this was bottled September fourteenth, two thousand fifteen, as part of a batch number. Um, but uh, I'll definitely have to get uh, my hands on some more of this. Yeah, I, I haven't tried that one. I've had some other Oregon whiskey. Um, I've got one in the collection here called West Word, which is similar enough to Westland. Yes. But um, uh, I'll have to look for that. But it's interesting that yours is peated. Uh, mine is not. Um, and I, I did find it was, it was hiding in plain sight in my notes, even though it's not on the bottle. Um, Westland says this whiskey is aged, matured a minimum of 36 months. So there okay. could be some whiskey in the bottle older than that. But uh, three years is the minimum age of uh, a scotch right. that can be released. But American whiskeys, you know, uh, you know it, it, it could be younger because there's not quite, I don't think, the same um, requirements um, around. No, there, there's, I mean, depending on what you call it, some of the American whiskeys can be six months old. Mm-hmm. Um, heck, you can, uh, you, you can at least the clear stuff before it's been barrel aged yeah. if you choose to, and, and a few have. Um, but yeah, I think bourbon's two years, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, if it's called straight bourbon whiskey. It's called straight bourbon, right. Uh, so yeah, some younger, you know, uh, and, and they do different, uh, including the churring of the barrels and the first single use of the barrels. They do some other things that allow more flavor to come out of the early years where, um, you know, a lot of a lot of scotches uh, use time as uh, more of an ingredient for the interaction, um, and of course, it doesn't doesn't uh, help that their their temperature is more moderate. Yeah. Um, so it does take longer for the whiskey to interact with the barrel in the uh, uh, the colder temperatures of Scotland or the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. So it's inevitable that a couple of lean guys are going to talk about process, right? Yeah, we're, we, we haven't shared a single tasting note about other than we like it, but we, we have covered in detail about how, the, how it's made. So. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it, the, the, the other notes here you know, talk about how this has been aged partly in uh, new American oak, which um, Scotch producers would never use, my understanding is that they would never use new oak because it's it's more expensive so then this this one from westland is also aged in um, what they call first fill x bourbon barrels so meaning basically you know in bourbon producers do by law have to use new oak and so then first fill means basically this is the first time putting something else (laughs) in the bottle so that's one element so westland is i think um using a little bit of the scotch process but then also kind of putting their own twist on it with some new unused american oak yeah very interesting uh i haven't had the westland i'll definitely have to uh, find the opportunity now now you've been uh, just since we're on the pacific northwest you've mm-hmm. been uh collecting a list of having a whiskey from each of the 50 states yeah uh, ha- having meaning i've either i i have a bottle or I've had a, a taste at a bar. Yeah. So how are you, how, how many States left? I believe right now. Well, I, I think right now it's, um, I've achieved 34. So I have 16 left to go. See, I haven't okay. had that much champagne and whiskey to do the math. Right. <laughs> no, not that, not that math. So, uh, 
Um, yeah, it's going to probably be some states that are quite difficult. Um, it is produced in all 50 states. And I've had a whiskey that was blended and aged in the District of Columbia. I don't think anyone is distilling there within D.C. proper. Okay. Well, um, and in worst case, there's a micro still somewhere that, that might only <laughs> sell out of their own shop. But, right. Who's legally distilling? Well, there's legal, uh, legal yeah. questions as well. It's selling. But um, before we get into the deeper lean talk, can I touch on just two other process and terminology points? Fire away. Real quick. So, you know, we might have people listening who are indulging us in the whiskey talk and they might not know all, all the terminology. But back to Jamie's whiskey um, or anything from Scotland generally or, you know, when I was in Ireland, I saw the same style of still. What they call a pot still is uh, a particular shape and process um, of, of a still. It's sort of a batch process where you heat a batch of the distiller's beer and it evaporates and condensates. And, uh, but you know, a pot still is a very traditional style as opposed to what's often used in bourbon production or uh, in, in Japan and, and other places. Uh, sometimes it's what's called a column still which is more of a continuous process. So as, as lean guys, you'd think like, you know, should we, should we cringe at the idea of batch distilling? Because the, the continuous still, the column still can be run continuously without stopping to clean it out. Um, the remnants from the batch without the change over time. I don't know. Is that a lean? Yeah, well, there's some, it, it, it all depends on value, right? So, yeah, sure. um, you know, I think a lot of the continuous stills are, are done that way for volume purposes and uh, uh, certainly get the process up and running and you just keep feeding, keep feeding the beast and, and mm -hmm. it keeps spitting out stuff at the other end. Um, whereas as the, as a, with a pot still, you can uh, take a little more care in trimming the heads and the tails and mm -hmm. uh, sort of managing the, the, the process because it is a natural process right it's not uh yes there's a recipe but you're you're dealing with ingredients that don't always act in a uh it's not 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 everything you do you're not just blending ingredients right there's chemical reactions uh yeah. biological reactions that you don't aren't in full control of and so um it, it gives you perhaps more control over the final product especially with you know the heads and the tails and and uh, fine-tuning it to where where you want to be at least that's what most people that do pot stilling will tell you uh whether whether uh it certainly doesn't mean you can't get a good product out of continuous still but yeah but yeah it all comes down to value um uh, you know what what produces what the customer wants and and so the continuous flow of of the uh, column still certainly is very different than the batch and certainly seems more lean, but if it produces an inferior product, then maybe not. Well, that's why I don't like the word lean as a, uh, as a catch-all adjective, you know? So you could produce, is it better because it's from a pot still? Probably not necessarily so. Um, there's an efficiency, but I think we, we'd probably agree, efficiency is not the end-all be-all, right? No, and for most of these, uh, you know, I mean, again, there's large houses that produce a ton and they almost need continuous process just to keep mm -hmm. up with demand. But I'm sure McCarthy's and Westland are not, you know, 
if they produced at volume each and every day, they couldn't sell it because they're not that big a brand yet. And yeah. And so um, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, yeah, could they, could they scale the process down to a little tiny column still and, and, and size it to their volume? Not sure that that really starts to work, but, uh, but there is a, uh, uh, the factor that, uh, to, to do a lot of those things at a column still on a, on a five days a week or seven days a week process just doesn't make sense for these smaller, uh, smaller places. Um, yeah. It, it's also interesting because, you know, I, I would propose since they are crafting and they are making uh, more varieties that it's a lot of them will talk about how they experiment um, and they'll yeah. even out of their, their own storefront sell some of their experimental whiskeys um, and, and it's got to be a whole lot easier to experiment with a pot still. Well, on the small end and talking about experimentalists, our friend David Meyer, I just pulled up here. He posted the other day on Facebook that his Glens Creek distilling in Kentucky, he's building his fourth pot still. And he, you know, he, he builds his own and, and kind of, you know, has control. He's vertically integrated that part of the process. <laughs> So yep. good for him. Yeah, and he's 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 finally releasing his Cuervito uh, uh, Vivo, um, which basically translates to Live Crow, um, uh, since he produces at the Old Crow Distillery, yep. he's now making Live Crow. Um, and he can't use the name Old Crow because that's owned by Jim Beam and still and still produced, <laughs> but uh, not to right. the standards it used to be. It, it certainly yep. seems so. But then um, just the other thing real quick, this is more of a terminology thing, something I learned when I was in Scotland for the first time. So when, when these whiskeys are labeled single malt, it might be confusing to, to some listeners. Um, you know, the description of this whiskey says it's comprised of five different types of malt. And they might think, well, wait a minute, it says single malt. But single malt, all that means is that it comes from a single distillery, which is a, a little bit of confusing terminology but um kind of yeah that, another that is choice important. they have to make yeah because i mean a lot of a lot of the major brands out of scotland especially the ones that became popular in our parents generation they bought stuff from a whole bunch of other people and blended them together johnny walker being one of the more yeah. famous ones that that uh you know so like koila is one of my favorites they they sell to johnny walker that's mm -hmm. where i think most of their volume actually goes but it's not all from that that uh, it should really be called single malter and not single malt. <laughs> single distiller. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, no, it's an interesting, interesting description of the Westland. I think I'll have to try that. So yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, sure thing. So um, I guess the main reason we're here, <laughs> more lean talk, we're about halfway through the episode. So we'll, we'll focus on lean the rest of the way. Sounds, sounds good. It's always a, always a part of why we're here. So I found an article, um, a lot of times we call this segment in the news, but this is really, this is not news. This is really more like in the journals. And this is actually an article uh, going back to 2002 uh, from AME Target Magazine. So it's not an academic journal, but it's the, uh, our friends at the Association for Manufacturing Excellence, or I think they're just AME Nowadays, and, and I forget how I stumbled across this article, um, maybe a month, 
or six weeks ago, but that the, the title of the article is Ono's Method, meaning Taiichi Ono, of course, from Toyota, Ono's Method, Creating a Survival Work Culture. And, and the article, you know, when you read articles, you know, people might ask, okay, well, you know, who, who is it who wrote it? Um, one of the authors, uh, Jinichiro Nakane, is a professor, um, at least at the time of the writing, was a professor uh, in Tokyo. It says he knew Taichi Ono personally, has studied TPS uh, a long time. Then the other co-author is uh, Robert Hall, or, you know, Doc Hall. Um, Jamie, do you, do you know Doc? I see him nodding. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. No, I've I, only I, met him briefly. I know Doc pretty well. Um, it's been, a, it's been a, a while, quite frankly, since I last talked with him. Um, but but always studied you know his writings and of course his uh, um, you know he he as I think he does in this article which we'll get into um, uh, tends to uh, study other experts and have his own opinions with equal uh, with equal levels of commitment uh, <laughs> and and then kind of blends them together and so at one moment he'll be talking about you know what how it really is at, at a place like Toyota with with expertise and, and uh, uh, conviction, and then will seamlessly move into his own original thinking with the same level of conviction. Um, but his, you know, he was, he, he certainly was, uh, lots of people have called themselves the, the godfathers of lean, but uh, you know, he was definitely one of the early pioneers uh, writing about this in the 80s um, and uh, one of the co-founders of AME, uh, and I'd say, uh, you know, I, I think one of the most servant uh, leader type of of these experts that, that were early pioneers, uh, very, very humble in the end, very serving of others, really, you know, really just wants to help people. Uh, hence, hence the engagement with AME as, as the opportunity. But but uh, a great guy really made some great contributions. Yeah, I mean, he was writing, at least he was one of the first Americans writing books about Toyota or, you know, in like the 1980s. So some of this might have been labeled just in time or Japanese manufacturing, quote unquote, right? Yep, absolutely. So he was, you know, before before lean was a word and before many of us were studying it actively, he was uh, he was out there studying, researching and uh, uh, writing and working with companies. So, like I said, an early pioneer. Um, and, uh, yeah, you get some of his style coming through in, in, in this, uh, in this article. Yeah. And, and the fact, you know, the article is freely available as a PDF, uh, from AME. So we will link to it in the show notes and the, the blog post for the episode. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's what, about a 10, 10 yeah. page article. I mean, I, I've, I've read it and I highlighted a lot of it. It's a very dense article. I mean that in a good way. Like there are a lot of important points uh, in in the article um, but but Jamie maybe I'll just you know throw it to you first in terms of like one of the things that jumped out to you is something worth talking about yeah so I mean it, 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 it starts off in the in the title um, but but it goes throughout talking about culture and and, and a lot of you know Teichi Ono is given a lot of credit for things like you know creating real just-in-time pull and, and doing all these things and Ono circle but 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 really, um, you know what he what what this article really almost starts with is that 
Toyota's culture traceable to Ono was really the, what they said was the culture building side of TPS and is applicable to any, any, any kind of build business. And I, I, I think there was interesting wording, culture building, because um, I, I certainly see, uh, first of all, this is an early article. This is not you know, my, my work on Lean Eagles culture you know, predates this article, but uh, you know, back in 2002, not a lot of people really, really talked about Lean's culture. It was still heavy into high stream mapping and tools mm-hmm. and practices. Um, but I felt like culture building was an interesting phrasing because um, it wasn't about, you know, it wasn't copying culture uh, from Toyota. It, he really called it culture building. And, and so I, I've always believed you can, you can, uh, you can learn from Toyota, you can learn from others, but ultimately if you're going to, if you're going to be successful at this, you have to build it yourself. You really have to go through the hard work of building your own culture mm-hmm. to make this uh, truly last. Well, and every organization has a starting point of its own culture, right? So it's not like flipping a light switch and saying like, oh, we're going to buy a new culture or plug it in like new software. Um, but, you know, one, one thing, you know, going back to the subtitle of the article and the introduction of it, you know, it says, you know, that after the war, World War II, um, during the formative periods for the Toyota production system, Toyota was fighting to survive. So it says, at its core, it remains a survival culture. And at the end of the article, you know, they're sort of asking, or, you know, or maybe, you know, you know, they're lamenting or worrying. So, you know, when the money rolls in, our survival mentality fades. And so I think, you know, there's a question around, well, does that culture, is that fading at Toyota or is it just inevitably um, evolving? Because Toyota is pretty flush with cash, but I don't think that means there are any I mean, I think, you know, it's already, it's already in uh, different elements around like frugality and creativity are probably pretty deeply embedded. Yeah. I, I think there's, you know, there's aspects of Toyota's culture that I think we can sort of map to lean that we can say, Oh, those are the aspects of Toyota's culture that are really worth learning from. And there's other aspects that are simply part of their history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and whether they're because they're Japanese or where they grew up in Japanese or the conditions in which they grew up. Now, I do think, uh, so I don't believe, I think it's an interesting question. I don't believe you have to have a survival culture to be a lean culture. Um, that being said, I think you need something to drive you, right? Something to drive you, some pursuit, um, some, something that, that transcends any year's performance. And, and, and with Toyota, in a lot of ways, it is survival, but it, it could be the mission of the company. It could be growth. It could be, um, as we look at companies like Menlo, Joy, uh, Creation of Joy. Uh, it could be lots of different things, but I think you need something to drive you. Uh, but I don't think survival has to be, has to be there and uh, has to be that sing- singular element. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'll say this for two reasons. One, you know, as companies I know that have done quite well, that, that, that have lots of protections that make survival really a foregone conclusion almost. Um, or it's just not very prevalent. It's not, they're not very fragile. They're not very, it's not very likely. And um, even if they wanted to create it, it would be a very false, uh, false premise. So I, yeah. I, 
I, I, I, I get the connection between Toyota's survival culture and their lean culture, but I don't think it has to be the ingredient. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think of, you know, a different, very strong lean culture. Um, my friend Carl Waddenstead and his company Vibeco in Rhode Island, from my visits there, my understanding, it wasn't a survival need. It was more of a market opportunity. And, uh, you know, I think it was, um, you know, during the Great Recession or whatever we're calling it, at, you know, 2009 timeframe, um, they saw an opportunity to build market share by and, 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 and using lean to improve flow. So instead of batching everything and saying that we could ship any customized product to a customer same day or next day was a competitive advantage that allowed them to grow during the recession. So maybe on some level they feared, like we, you know, we, we don't want to let it get to a point where now it's a matter of survival. But you know, I think Carl's motivations were more about growth, which I think is a, a better it's a less dysfunctional motivation than um, an organization that's shrinking and cost cutting. Yeah. And, and, and I do think that the circumstances that you face that helps make that choice may not be in your control, right? I mean, Toyota, Toyota um, out of necessity had a survival culture, right? Cause it was very, you know, very questionable multiple times whether they could survive. Um, and, and yeah, they've sustained it. Uh, most of the time, but uh, but it's it's uh, it was their circumstances that allowed that to be genuine. There's a lot of companies I've worked with where if you said, "Oh, we need we need to you know be paranoid like the Intel model or yeah. survival culture," it would have been disingenuous and and therefore not real. So I think sometimes your circumstances, the opportunity for growth, uh, the pursuit of a of a societal mission. Uh, survival. I think, I think it's what you do with it. I think the circumstances help shape it, uh, but it's what you do with it that counts. Yeah. Now, um, you know, there are other really interesting themes in the article. One that jumped out at me, or a couple of them I think are related, is Kaizen, or engaging people in continuous improvement and problem solving. So, you know, one, one quote from the article you know, talked about, um, you know, making maximum use of everyone's brain power to devise simple, ingenious solutions to problems. And I think that that's, that's core uh, TPS. I would hope that, I mean, like to me, that should be part of um, a lean culture. But, you know, I think one other thing that jumped out at me on, on, along those lines, it says uh, employees, frontline employees must be more than empowered. They must be enthused. So they must be, you know, they, they, so I guess, you know, it kind of leads to the question of, I'm curious your thoughts on this, Jamie. Well, how do you create enthusiasm? Because em- empowerment without enthusiasm doesn't necessarily lead to action. But, you know, the article talks about creating a critical mass of people um, who have pride doing Kaizen leading to that culture. What, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's, uh, you know, pretty important aspect because you know a lot of a lot of organizations feel or a lot of leaders let's not talk about organizations generically mm-hmm. a lot of leaders will think hey i've i've given permission to my team or my you know people five levels down whatever that might be i've given permission to my team i've given them training i've told them they're empowered right why why aren't i getting more 
Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but sometimes it's just harder to, to, to make the changes than to live with the waste. But, but fundamentally, it's that, that enthusiasm uh, that I think, you know, what, what, what drives people? What, what, what should make people thrilled to make an improvement? Um, you know, sometimes it's the reduction of burden. Sometimes it's just the opportunity to, to get rid of their own waste. Um, but, but even as, you know, they, they tried to codify Ono's method, and I'm not sure how well they really did that, uh, certainly not in a copyable way. But they also said, you know, derive personal pleasure from accomplishing Kaizen. Well, that's joy, that's joy in work, whether that's Rich Sheridan at Menlo or what right. Dr. Deming would say. Exactly. And I, and I do think, I, I think that word accomplishment is important, right? So um, they're, they're, not, they're not just involved, right? They're accomplishing things. Mm-hmm. And when they go home at the end of the day, did they, did, oh, we produced 500 cars today. Same as every day, because that's mm-hmm. what the standard is <laughs> um, with our quantity control. No, no, no. We, we, I actually, oh, I, did, I worked on this, this quality problem, or I worked on this efficiency gain, or I worked on, you know, you, you get excited about that opportunity to make a contribution and accomplish something. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the, the key driver of that enthusiasm, which, uh, again, going back to culture, this article is really saying that's, that's a big part of what Ono brought to the table. Is he, he didn't just empower them. He didn't just train them. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about coaching here in a, in a little bit, but he, he got them excited about what they were doing. Yeah, and I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot to that that is uh, often underappreciated in how leaders approach this. Yeah, and I, mean, I think a lot of it is really more about tapping into people's excitement um, and, and innate creativity and, and pride in work. I mean, you know, this is really powerful in healthcare when you see a, a really strong culture of continuous improvement. Like think of, um, my healthcare Kaizen book co-authors health system in Indianapolis, the Franciscan St. Francis health system, the enthusiasm about making your work easier, about making the patient experience better, about improving quality and patient safety. Like it, it the enthusiasm is so noticeable. And, yeah. and that, that's been, you know, that, that natural enthusiasm unfortunately gets drummed out of people. I think that, that fire can be relit through good leadership. Yeah. And, and I think of course the opportunity and then of course the accomplishment that, that follows that. Um, and so that's where, again, it becomes mission driven. What's going to get people excited each and every day? What are they actually trying to solve for? And then the ability to actually make a difference um, is, is what's important because uh you know, one of the things that kind of keeps people in their jobs, um, not out of, you know, uh, it keeps people stuck in their jobs is that when it seems harder to go make a change than to, than to live with it, then, then they just live with it. And so they get stuck as a, a cog in the machine and they hate their job every day. So making, reducing that friction, providing that opportunity for people to make that contribution in a purposeful way um, is important, but the purpose I do think is important. You know, empowerment isn't in my, uh, definitions, letting people go work on whatever they want. I think there's still guidance and direction and, you know, 
Taichi Ono set a lot of clarity and guardrails and direction around what he wanted people working on. Mm-hmm. They didn't just go work on whatever they felt like it. Um, but w- how they solved it, that's where they made their contribution within his, under his tutelage and, and system. And, and part of that tutelage is the article talks about and they describe as Ono's method and a leadership approach is not the leader having all the answers, but it says, you know, talk, it talks here about mentoring and Ono developing other people by challenging them with provocative questions, stimulating them to improve processes on their own and then learning to self-manage them. So I mean, I'm, I know you had flagged this as something to talk about, Jamie. I mean, what, 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 how, how's that line up with, with your experiences or, or things that you teach um, coaching through provocative questions? Yeah. So, so I think it's interesting that, that, you know, it, they, they, they go on the article to talk about how, you know, he coach individuals, but he also coach leaders to then coach other individuals. Mm-hmm. It, it certainly seems like, and it, again, we, we, we know this if we study all of Teichiano's writings and stories, et cetera. I don't spend a lot of time saying we should do something because Teichiano did it. Mm-hmm. And so I focus more on what, what the company has in front of them and what the challenge is and how do we overcome it. But certainly I've said for a long time, coaching is a key element. Um, But usually I'm framing it quite frankly as coaching is how you achieve lean. Um, And and this would, this would argue that, you know, coaching is part of lean, maybe even Mm -hmm. the central part of lean. Mm -hmm. And, And so you know, again, that's just semantics. So I'm not sure it matters much as long as you're doing it and doing it well. But uh, you know, coaching wasn't change management. Coaching was part of his system, right? And uh, part of his methods. And uh, they weren't always pleasant. Um, plenty of stories about his his methods that aren't that aren't that pleasant. But but fundamentally, he did build his system with coaching as one of its elements. And we always say, well, you know, Kanban and things like that are, are what Teichi Ono implemented, but he implemented a culture based on coaching, which mm-hmm. is, is something pretty admirable and um, I'd say pretty unusual for the decades in which he was doing most of his work. And, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, the coaching, um, you know, I think this word, even modern day Toyota talks about uh, problem solving or Kaizen is not just about solving the business problem at hand, but first and foremost, developing employees. And, 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 you know, I've heard Toyota people say the first priority is developing employees and their skills. The second priority is the actual business results in the short term. So I think some of that ties back to long-term uh, philosophy. Um, but, you know, coaching people, not telling them the answer, but helping them understand, which comes back to, you know, the, the, the stories around the Ono circle. And I think some of this maybe gets watered down. And, and the one way this article was really thought provoking to me, it comes back to your point, Jamie, about we shouldn't do something just because Ono said to do it that way, or he did do it that way. You know, there's, there's stories about, well, Ono would draw a circle on the ground and he would make someone stand there for the entire shift. Well, you know, this article says at a couple of points, 
he didn't literally, he didn't ask people to literally confine themselves to the circle. And there's other parts in the article, uh, that section where it says he coached, quote unquote, budding TPS leaders, which I don't know if that means younger employees. It says he would draw a chalk circle and have them stand for several hours. But then it also says on the next page that he never did this with executives. It says a popular story is that Ono made top executives stand in a circle too, but no one remembers an instance when he actually did this. So I, I, to me, I think there's the literal history of like, oh, the Ono method means you draw a circle and force someone to stand in it. But the article actually, I think, tells a richer story about his approach really being about understanding the current state, whether that means literally standing in a circle or moving around a little bit, like go and deeply understand, which is what I hear you know, more um, contemporary Toyota people explaining. You've got to grasp the situation. You've got to go to see um, you know, that there's more to it than just someone could copy the circle and maybe miss the spirit of all of this. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, you know, confining to the circle is really the point. I, I, I like the, the extension of that quote, which was dig through the clutter to mm-hmm. see the essential problem. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so that's, that's sort of the, you know, the action. Um, but, but this, this goes back to me, the idea of, of coaching. Right? So in, in soccer, we have a phrase that, that the game is the best teacher. The idea is you craft opportunities for someone to self-discover. And a lot of people I coach sometimes get frustrated because they're not giving them the answer. And <laughs> just tell me the answer, Jamie. Just tell me the answer. And it's like, no, no, no. It's about self-discovery. And that's what makes you a stronger you know, practitioner, a stronger leader, a stronger coach, whatever, because you, you discovered it on your own. Uh, my job only was to create the opportunity for you to learn that. And I, I think that's a large part of, you know, the, the circle. It, it, it really, I don't think I've seen any teaching, any writing or research where it says he did that as a um, as an actual improvement methodology. It was a coaching methodology. It was getting people to experience it so that they would then value it. Um, and and. Um, yeah, I, I worked with Awadasan, who was uh, who was one of the few people that went in sort of consulting that didn't work with him, but worked directly for him. A lot of mm-hmm. a lot of people were sort of secondhand, thirdhand uh, associations. Awadasan worked directly for him, and he never drew a circle. Um, but boy, he would certainly make me going back to the quote: "Dig through the clutter to see the essential problem." Yeah. Um, and, and so the core tenet of that was any mechanism to force that experience. Yeah, I mean, the, the, we could we could talk about this article in the next episode and the episode after, and probably probably we should have had Japanese whiskey as the theme, perhaps. But uh, I, I really can't recommend this article uh, enough. Um, I mean, there, there's there, there's a lot in here. There's so many good nuggets. One, one other thing. Maybe I'll throw out for discussion real quick. And, and again, real, re- remembering there was a Japanese co-author of this article. It says here, um, Japanese ethnicity played a very small part in developing the TPS work culture. Many Japanese managers have no more instinct for it than Western ones, which I, I think you know, when, when we hear people 
say things like you know in the in the, in the U.S. we might say, oh well, yeah, yeah, this would all be easier for Japanese. One of the greatest lessons I've taken away from going to Japan, in addition to all of the great things I've seen and the inspiration and the things I've learned, is is you know kind of education around lean or TPS not being the naturally occurring default in every Japanese company. And I think that makes me respect Toyota even more because they've created this culture out of necessity and leadership and motivations. Yeah, and I, I agree entirely. Now, there are some aspects like standardization mm-hmm. and an appreciation of efficiency that perhaps are uh, more commonly found in Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. But if you look at a lot of what Ono was known for, finding, exposing problems, making problems visible, well, mm-hmm. that actually runs counter to most of <laughs> Japanese culture. Yes. And, and so, you know, exposing problems, the idea of exposing problems rapidly, highly visibly, um, certainly runs against a, a large part of that culture. And so I, I, think, I, I think we can certainly dispel the myth that, that Lee is successful at Toyota because it's Japanese. That being said, just like every company, has their own starting point for culture, uh, whether it's survival or growth or mission-driven or whatever it might be. You also have differences in in country culture uh, that that will affect how you approach lean. Whether people yeah. are more malleable, more maverick, um, uh, more open, more more conservative, right? Th- those things will have an impact on at least your change management of how you approach engaging. Yeah. So um, maybe we'll move on to the listener question. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I'll first say before we get into the question that uh-huh. you know, we really want these questions from folks. So uh, email us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, we'll, we'll either use your name, or if you say you know you don't want us to use your name, that's fine too. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll say it like this: you know, a lot of you ask us questions, um, but directly or personally, but uh, the, the, the most selfless thing to do is ask them for the podcast so we can share the answer with others. So we, we really appreciate questions. So um, actually I have a question that didn't stem directly from our, 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 our plea for questions, but, but from, from a question that we get um, through other avenues. And it's really about how do you organize frontline supervision for best results? Um, you know, obviously that there's a lot of variables there, a lot of different industries. And again, a lot of people tried to copy Toyota um, in, in that case. Certainly plays into the article that we just talked about. Um, but but uh, again, you have to move from where you are to where you want to be. How you organize that, what makes sense, what do you consider when you do that, uh, makes a big difference in how your how your teams operate, how they engage, what their culture is. So, so what are your first thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think my first thought comes back to you know to, from first thought from the question comes back to healthcare, where I spend most of my time these days, and. It, it, there, there's a real challenge. Um, you know, the frontline supervisors, whether that's, you know, in some settings, a charge nurse or a nurse manager um, or the equivalent in other settings, I mean, they're, they're just, they're spread too thin. 
the, the number of employees who report to them is much larger than you would see at Toyota and a good lean factory. Um, or, you know, they're, they're because of staff shortages, they're instead of jumping in to help occasionally, they're in the work four days out of the week. And so then, you know, I think this, this hampers problem solving, things just become stagnant. Um, when, when essentially you don't have, like from a technical standpoint, you have frontline supervision, but they're not doing, they're not able to do the types of things that were written about in the article that we discussed in terms of problem solving and challenging the status quo. People are just trying to survive. Yeah, I, I think I think healthcare has a particular problem there that that oh, there are other industries that it's like uh, legal professions, uh, a lot of startups, especially highly technical startups, have this problem where you're, you're both you know senior management and direct labor at the same yeah. time. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm the chief medical officer slash cardiologist, uh, uh, how much time? You know, I have a, a certain amount of administrative tasks to do with my, my CMO job, but how much can I really spend on culture building and, and that type of stuff? And this was a problem that we faced uh, when we started the, the journey at Chrysler some 20 years ago. And, and we, we, we talked a lot. We used a Toyota case study quite, quite frequently. And uh, we would talk about the five to one ratio between a team leader and a, and a team member. And so everybody's like, oh, well, we need that. We, we, need, we need a different ratio because our ratio averaged 75 to one. That was, wow. our, that was our average ratio at that time. The company was still in, you know, uh, just clawing their way out of bankruptcy or near bankruptcy. Uh, not a lot of money stripped out. But, but we also knew that even if we had the money, which we didn't at that time, um, if we added, if we hired a whole bunch of supervisors, we would probably do the wrong things with them. Mm. And, and, and because we would just to do more of what we were currently doing, oversight, uh, administrative tasks, uh, you know, I'll say shoving people all the way to solve the problem ourselves, all that kind of stuff. Um, which is why I, I've, I've said often and for a long, long time, the process should, should come first. And that should, that should lead any changes you make to the organization. And so, you know, while, while we might all argue about what, what, you know, what a frontline supervisor should do, um, whether you copy that answer or you come up with your own answer, you got to put your processes in place, then, you know, find out that your ratios are all wrong and then start to change your organizational right. structure to, to, to fit and serve how you want your processes to work. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there, there's no easy answers. I mean, this is kind of a broad question, but when you think about layers and, and span of supervision, even in my last manufacturing company, at one point they had eliminated a layer of frontline team leaders to use the Toyota language, but it was, you know, supervisors. And so then the manager over multiple areas or what Toyota would call a group leader basically had 30 to 40 people reporting to them in multiple areas and so some of these some of these departments were essentially supervision free zones and you know so then that 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 led to a lot of problems or, or, or problems not being solved and so i think 
you know, my, my understanding is that this had been done in the name of cost cutting and efficiency. And, you know, it's, I'd argue maybe that's a false efficiency where you know, I can think, think of one hospital system that had done a similar thing. They had eliminated a layer of management and then learned experientially that, Oh, okay, wait a minute. Maybe that wasn't the greatest idea. So they put that layer back in, but with very specific standard work or what some people will call, you know, lead, leader standard work of, of, of having a very clear plan for the hypothesis. If we put this layer of management back in and they do these things, we will get these better results. And I think that comes back to the question of organizing that layer of supervision. You know, it's, it's about results. It's not copying what some other organization did. Yeah, and that's where you know a lot of a lot of organizations would look at um, what their management is doing and say, "Well, okay, we don't we don't value most of that, so let's strip it out." Um, maybe to get to where we really want to be, we have to add it back in. But, but we, it's it's almost easier to to strip it out and add it back in than it is to just transform it. Um, you, you go back to uh, uh, the quotes in the movie Wall Street where. Uh, Gordon Gecko standing up and talking about, you know, this army of VPs who are all just pushing paper back and forth. And if we just stopped that, we'd probably save an awful lot of money because they were doing the wrong things with those resources. Um, so, so you have to, again, this is, you have to decide what your process should be before you put those resources into place. We, we made one organizational change at one company and we're kind of turning it upside down in a lot of different ways. So you couldn't track from what it was to what it would be. But we, we actually quite frankly lied. We, we hmm. said, we've done a time study on your new job hmm. and we've, the, the job has been designed so that 40% of your time is spent on continuous improvement. Uh, there was no time study. It was just what we wanted it to be. <laughs> so we, yeah. just, we just set out the expectation from the start. You're in a whole new job. You're gonna have to learn whole new habits. We want those habits formed around 40% of your time of continuous improvement. I don't know if that was the actual number. And, and you know what? It came, yeah, we didn't measure it precisely, but it came pretty much true because we, we, we designed the process, we designed the role, and then we put the resources in place to feed that rather than put a bunch of resources in place and then hope the right things happen. Yeah. I guess it's fair to say hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy, and especially with uh, especially with new resources, um, uh, whether you're hiring replacements or adding people, um, you know, if there's bad habits to be formed, it's an easy opportunity to add them uh, unless you integrate them in a purposeful, a very purposeful way. Yeah. Okay, maybe our strategy for uh, bringing the episode to a close includes kind of more of a, a fun question kind of close things. So I'll ask the question you can answer first, Jamie. If you weren't involved in lean or anything operations related, what career might you have pursued? Yeah, so this is, um, this is in our, our, our fun sort of get to know us category. Um, the things, the things that you would, you know, talk about after a couple, couple drinks. Um, You know, if I think about not doing lean, then it all goes into a whole litany of different operational leadership roles that 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 would uh, um, really not be too far afield of what what I'm doing now. So, 
So, you know, to really stretch, if I go back to other things that I really considered and were on the verge of doing, um, mathematics was always fascinating to me. Um, It somewhat came naturally. Um, I used to be able to do calculus in my head, which my professor insisted was impossible. And um, you got to show your work, Jamie. Yeah, I got to show your work. I I tell my kids now, I got it. You know, teacher said you got to show your work, even though I didn't. I'm pretty honest with my stories, even if they're not always good examples to follow. Um, And uh, but 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 I I very seriously considered a PhD in applied mathematics. Um, I don't know what I would have done with it. I just thought, you know, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna love math, then I'm gonna go. Is what's the what's the deepest you can go? Well, how about a PhD? So um, I, I, what, what, it, what drove me away from it a bit was uh, actually doing, a, uh, doing an internship in a research lab with a whole bunch of PhDs, moved very slowly. And um, I, I liked the work. I just didn't like the pace of, of change, uh, but became very interested in that and um, uh, very possibly would have gone down that path. Um, yeah. Um, what, what is, I'm good with numbers, but what is applied math? I've heard the term, but I, I don't know what that field is really. It's really sort of like not math just to serve math theorems, like you would see in, say, the movie Goodwill Hunting, but connecting connecting that math to real real problems um, in 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 how it gets uh, uh, manifested. So uh, you're not just writing, you know, your your final work is actually producing something rather than simply ending up in the back of a textbook that. 40 people will read or a journal article. Um, not that that's bad, just uh, that would be where, where it'd get applied. Um, and, and I'd have to say if, you know, if I, if I could really pick, uh, you know, probably the, everyone thinks I'd, I'd rather be a soccer player. And honestly, I'd probably really rather soccer, a high level soccer coach than a soccer player. But, but honestly, if my talent wasn't a limiting factor, um, I think, uh, one of my biggest regrets is giving up my saxophone uh, playing um, and uh, being a jazz saxophonist, um, playing gigs. And if I had the talent and, of course, kept kept it up to do that, that would be a pursuit that that uh, I wasn't able to pursue. So the, yeah. the, the Ph.D. I chose not to pursue. This is one I wasn't able to pursue, but that would have been pretty cool. So, so how about... I'll, I'll- I'll answer the question coming from a different direction. So like a lot of kids, I mean, I figured out relatively quickly, even though I played baseball up through my freshman year in high school, it was not in the cards for me to be a professional athlete. Um, Just wasn't going to happen. So then I thought the second best thing, I had a friend of mine in elementary school and middle school, uh, one of my best friends, his dad was what they call a beat writer for the Detroit Tigers. So he got to go. Very cool. <laughs> that was his full-time job. He would go on the road, go to every game. Um, I would be at my friend Scott's house. Sometimes if, you know, if the Tigers were in town, uh, his dad would, would be in his home office and we'd be playing and we'd hear his mom yell, you know, Hey, uh, Hey Vern, Jack Morris is on the phone. <laughs> and you know, my, my friend Scott would get to go to spring training every year, uh, every other year he would alternate with his brother. And so anyway, like to me, that was a dream job because I loved baseball. And like, even through high school, I was editor of the school paper. 
Um, I've always been interested in journalism and, and, and that was sort of an idea that I had. My dad is an electrical engineer um, in, in a loving fatherly way, steered me away from journalism. I don't think he considered what the internet was going to do to journalism. Like it's heartbreaking to me when I see articles about layoffs in journalism that sound like the articles about the decline of uh, manufacturing in some sort. Right. So, right. Um, so I mean, no, no great regrets there because then as I eventually learned, I was able to take writing skill and apply it to things related to lean. So there we go. I can still, I can still write. Um, but you know, you mentioned saxophone. I was very serious about um, drumming and, and, and percussion. And like right up until the end of my senior year, I was considering, um, like I went to Northwestern to do my engineering undergrad, but they had a five-year program that was a dual engineering music program. And one idea that I, I thought I wanted to be like an acoustical engineer in design, uh, auditoriums and symphony halls and, and, and things like that. And then um, I, I learned like I was taking private lessons from a graduate student um, toward the end of high school and I, you know, talking to him and realizing like, I just didn't have it in me. I love music. I loved playing, but frankly, I was, I was getting by well enough on talent and the idea of being in a practice room alone eight hours a day and putting in the work to be a professional, to even have a chance of being a professional museum, uh, <clears throat> musician, is that the whiskey? <clears throat> being a be. professional musician. Um, I, I just, you know, okay, I, I thought, okay, fine. I'm not going to go that path. Northwestern was expensive enough for four years, yet alone five. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. So that's, that's pretty cool. So we, we either could have, uh, uh, started a quartet and you would have been the, the percussionist. I would have been the saxophonist. We need a bass player and a, a trumpet or piano. Um, or you would have written about baseball and I would have been your statistician. Um, so we, we could have, we, we might've ended up with a podcast after all. We, 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 um, we could have gotten in on the, uh, the baseball analytics movement. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that would have been, um, <laughs> That would have been very cool to me because I, I, I love picking apart why, why a lot of the stats that are used are just the wrong stats. So uh, uh, we, we, we could have we been on the ground floor of that one, so for sure. But, yeah, no regrets. Awesome. <laughs> no regrets, could, no. So what, these are, what, are uh, what could have been. <laughs> roads not traveled, so, uh, so now we're here with uh, – I guess we never said radio radio show host, even though we've, we've ended up here with a, with a podcast or or a master distiller either. Um, but uh, I guess that brings us to a to a close of our our first episode in yeah. 2020 together. Yes, and it's good to do that, and it's it's always fun talking to Jamie, and we talk about sense of purpose. Uh, part of the purpose is that we get to chat, and we're glad anybody even cares to listen. Absolutely. We, we appreciate everyone that listens. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm always interested when people bring it up when I travel, whether they ask me a question about whiskey or about lean um, yeah. as a result. But, uh, yeah. you know, certainly much rather be doing this than, the, than watching the Oscars. Uh, no offense <laughs> to anybody that chose to do that instead. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah, this was, 
this is what we, uh, we how we choose to uh, spend some of our time, and we appreciate everyone that spends some of their time with us. I, I do appreciate that, and I don't mean to be dismissive of listeners, but I'm thinking like, ah, oh, this episode's running longer than some of our other ones, but if anyone's still with us here at the end, thank you for hanging out with us, whether you're on the plane or in a car or jogging. Um, thanks for spending time with us. I do Absolutely. We do. Um, so if this is uh, your first episode and you, you want to find other episodes, you can uh, find us online uh, a number of ways. You can go to www.leanwhiskey.com. You can spell it the Scotch style, the Canadian style, K-E-Y or just K-Y. That forwards uh, to the page on leanblog.org. And then you can also find it through Jamie's website, which is which is jflinch.com slash lean whiskey. And, you know, I would encourage you, um, you can find us, you, you, can, uh, you can find us wherever you're, maybe you're listening to us through the webpage now. You can find us through the, um, uh, the diff- different podcast services, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. There's probably others that the podcast gets distributed through. Yep, and we really appreciate it. However you listen to us, rate us, review us, subscribe to us, turn on your notifications. Uh, we appreciate you letting us into your life, but you know, share your thoughts uh, so that, A, we can get better, and B, others can find us. We really appreciate uh, those rates, ratings and, and reviews. Those rates, that's the whiskey talking? It could be. Yes. <laughs> Shouldn't have How been we a long get- weekend, but... If someone suggested, yeah, well, that too. We tend to do these on Sunday nights and our weekends are busy. If someone's suggestion is what the, the podcast would be better if you didn't have one and a half whiskeys, well, I, that may just sit in the suggestion box. I, I'm pretty sure it is. And I, I, I didn't know, I didn't know we were supposed to stop at one and a half. So uh, um, I might not be following our standard work at two. I don't, the standard is still being defined. That's fair. It might've been two. But um, either way, it's all good. Yeah. But this, this is not the show Drunk History. This is not Drunk Lean. It's Lean Whiskey. So it's Lean Talk with a fun spirit, as we say. But anyway, let, let's go ahead. I guess we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Cheers. Weissmark got two glasses. <laughs> Thanks.